Hey everybody, it's Ned. Oop, yep, beep, boop. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was recording. Hey everybody, it's Ned. Welcome back to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. Kind of want to just get into this, but personal note, I am doing the whole 30 diet, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Spread the word. I know those of you who have been tuning in that really like the whole 30 have been waiting for me to say it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's a demographic we serve with the podcast, but yeah, that's been interesting. And so, Ned, how do you connect random pieces of your personal life to the mortality conversation? Um, that's my impersonation of, of you, I guess. Um, well, I don't know that I do. I, I think there's this back and forth of <laughs> wanting to acknowledge the ridiculous things we go through in life that seem extra ridiculous considering the fact that we're going to be dead eventually. Like I just imagine my dead self thousands of years from now having another dead self coming up to it and saying, so what were the diets you were doing during that time that you were alive? Tell me, tell me all the details. What was it like? What did, what, you know, what stuck, what stuck from that? And that you brought back into the afterlife, you know, lessons, wisdom. Because there's part of me really that when I'm on a diet like this, which for those of you that don't know, the whole 30, the simplest way of describing why it's significant for me is I can't have any sugar, processed sugars and carbohydrates and gluten and dairy. All that stuff is out. I, th I came up with the significance of the diet for me, the impact it's had um, in eliminating the three C's. This is my three C's that I came up with for sugar uh, in my life, my relationship to sugar, my sugar codependency. The three C's are craze, crash, and cravings. And the craze is just how we are when we're on the drug that is sugar, you know, <laughs> heightened level of experience, tablespoon of sugar in your coffee in the morning. Remember this line from the show True Detective on HBO where the one cop says to the other cop, how do you take your coffee? And the other cop says, like a dessert. Um, that's me. And then the, the crash, of course, from the craze that deep low of not uh, having the sugar make you high. And then the cravings. I'm not judging anybody out there. I'm just talking about how sugar has been for me and I'm just a sensitive being. So it's a big deal to have taken this break. And now to bring it back around to the reason we're here and you're listening to this podcast at all, the creatively conscious mortality podcast I'm just having moments on this where I think, who friggin' cares? Why am I putting myself through this? I'm gonna die eventually anyway. 
Um, <laughs> just give me a goddamn donut. Let me eat a pint of ice cream. Uh, but I'm glad I'm doing it. Also, in a way that connects to the mortality thing, which is the presence of being I have, the even energy I have of my spirit and health, like the my physical experience being in the world and how it has me, I don't know, showing up doing this podcast in a certain way or holding space for grief in a certain way. I'm just curious, okay? I'm just curious. So I'm going to keep being curious. I'm going to keep doing it. I'll keep you up to date. Oh, mind-blowingly, the, the next episode will still have me in the Whole30 diet, so I'll be able to definitively give you an update on how it's been going. There's some kind of tiger blood stage that I'm getting to. I'm not even going to tell you what it means because I don't know. Um, it's supposed to be good, though. Anyway, can't wait for tiger blood. All right, well, let's get back to why we're here, which is more... Uh, importantly, this general mortality thing that we all share. And as I've mentioned in the past with our guests, there's a way the podcast is kind of figuring its way into the world and how it wants to be heard, I guess, and how I want to creatively give of myself into it and who the guests are and how they fit. And so what is this podcast? You're going to die the podcast. Why is it? What makes it its own unique thing and worthy for any kind of listening? And we're still figuring that out, I guess. I, I mean, there's it's not a big enough question that we're not doing it. I feel like there are some obvious answers, and, and a lot of the episodes have been an answer to the questions like why. It's been personally special to, to do this, and sometimes that barometer is the only measurement you need, I guess in the beginning especially. But we're pretty deep into it now. What are we in the like 15th, 16th, 17th episode? I, I, I figure eventually we'll stop keeping track. Um, I have, obviously. But one thing I'm, I'm noticing is that it's not that different from what you're going to die has always been. And I talked about this in some of the past episodes, but really over the years have loved the wisdom that comes from and in the conversation around grief and humans processing grief and being with loss and heartbreak creatively and that the artists in my life have the musicians especially have been the ones to teach me and so this episode is proving again that i love that version of this creatively conscious mortality conversation and so feeling deeply happy to have this episode's guest on with us today. I really enjoy this conversation with Alex Ebert. Alex Ebert is a Golden Globe winning composer and multi-platinum frontman of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, who has recently turned his attention to philosophy and sense making, which is kind of where we connected. There's plenty of musicians and artists out there that I that I love, but I'm not just like, let's find someone who's a really great musician in the world. I'm interested in the artists that are engaging with this conversation in their creative being here. And Alex has been doing a lot of that this year out of the pandemic 
on Instagram, probably be the easiest way to get to it, talking about death and his relationship to it. Not just literally, but also, and you'll find and learn from this episode, figuratively or egoically or or creatively. Yeah, like the the creative process of of being an artist and dying to versions of you, dying to projects that were yours, being reborn to something new, some new identity in your creative work. And so I'm loving this conversation for all those reasons because it does that and I get to hear it from one of the musicians I've been loving and listening to for years and years. And also touches on the facts of, of mortality and death and the conversation of, of that or conversations from that. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did or am making it. And uh, like usual, I, I don't know what to say next other than let's get to it. Here's You're Going to Die, the podcast with Alex Ebert. Everywhere, vitality is defined by regeneration, not straight persistence of life. Straight persistence of life is death. That's how cancer behaves. It tries to refuse death. And so this idea of dying in our lifetime and the death of identity 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 and the reformation, the disformation um, as the access point of vitality, death as the access point of vitality, I think is really central um, to health <laughs> and well-being and, vi and, and life itself. So in my life, when I've experienced these, you know, these transformations, these, these changes, these oscillations um, in my own being, number one, the Whitman quote, like, I contain multitudes, you know, um, this is a fundamental universal truth about our substance. Our substance only has a tendency to be itself. When they collided particles in the Hadron Collider at CERN, they witnessed particles turning into other particles and then back to themselves. They witnessed particles only having a tendency to be themselves. We contain multitudes, and so this, this constant informational inculcation of who are you? Find out who you are. Who are you really? What is the essential, irreducible you? And if you don't find that in your lifetime, you have failed. What does that also sound like? It's, it's, it's repetition of self, it's cancerous, and it is pure brand. It's the law of branding. It's the law of capitalism and this idea of finding out who the irreducible you is. And then if you deviate from that, that's not you. And if you deviate from that, that creates distrust in whomever is witnessing you. This is a very detrimental notion to not only like society, but, but, but 
it's a very detrimental notion to progress. It's a very detrimental notion to um, vitality, but it's especially detrimental to creativity. Yeah. And, um, and so I've experienced that. I've experienced being maligned for having deviations, quote unquote, which are not deviations from a center, but rather permutations of a multitudinous form. And then wondered to myself, what the fuck? Why? What happened? Why are we so insistent on finding a, a, an irreducible, implacable, and, and, and static identity? What is it that we love about that? And, and, and what's driving us towards that? And where is death and, and our avoidant state, our avoidance of the formless? To what extent is the fear of the formless, of, of disformation, driving that need to like concretize a self as this immutable form? And then why all the vitriol and, uh, and, and inacceptance of permutations of self? What's the pushback on that for you from the outside? And then how do you see that then being like another death? Too. You know, you see James Dean married and uh, and serving his family a turkey dinner and laughing uh, with his kids. You'd be like, this fool sold out, right? <laughs> because it's like, wait a minute, he's supposed to be this. He's supposed to die. He's supposed crush. to die. He's supposed to uh, smoke cigarettes in the corner by himself. I, I don't want to see him like, you know, water skiing. Mm -hmm. That would be like a total sellout. So, um, you have this idea that like a, a, a need for total stability, but what is stability? Ironically, ironically, stability, total congruence of being is equilibrium. And what is equilibrium? It's death. It's actual death. death. It's death, death. Death. It's the non-being. It's actually when we embrace death and integrate like, you know, permutations that we end up becoming vital, that equilibrium, you know, like a waveform in music is defined by disruptions of equilibrium, by creating peaks and valleys that actually interrupt equilibrium. And so not being a static individual is almost mathematically <laughs> telling you that you're more vital and, uh, and more alive. And, um, and so I just find it highly, highly, highly ironic um, and so what I had to do when I was being um, lambasted for deviating from, for, for being alive, for deviating from, uh, from zero, um, was to zoom out and take a look at the whole system. What happened that this is happening? And that's really when I first started becoming, taking sort of philosophy more seriously. I started writing a book on cool about eight years ago now, uh, seven years ago. And um, yeah, I've been writing, you know, it's like a 500 page out of control, you know, screed at this point, but I, I have to refine it. But um, yeah, that, be, that, that began my, my little journey. Can you, thanks for that. Can you tell already that uh, there's a death to the earnestness even? Or do you think that there's a closeness yeah. to like truth, truth, is that uh, part of what you're so, closer to? So very closely, yeah. Like you say, truth. Very closely, uh, two years after the success of Edward Sharp, the success of earnestness, um, I realized 
I was I had been thrown into like a good vibes only um, pigeonhole uh, festival going sort of good vibes only um, spiritual bypass. I think it's very easy to misunderstand earnestness as quote positive um, mm-hmm. or as naive. Um, it's not. Uh, necessarily either of those things and um, for me like if you listen to the whole first Edward Sharp album it's almost it's 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 littered with death death is everywhere I was only five when my dad told me I die I already saw like um, you know oh like 40-day dream I could die Um, black water uh, mountains in reconstitutions embrace Um, brother which is about my friend dying um, Om Nashi May, which means yes, my destruction. The whole fucking album is littered with regenerative, i.e., embraces of death that no one saw because they were so, you know, obliterated by the yeah, the need right. for jubilation. And okay, but it's it's a defi- if you come to New Orleans, right? You come to New Orleans, you see all the second lines. You're like, oh, this is a really celebratory place. I guess they're all just only focusing on the positive here. The whole second line thing, the whole like marching band through the street thing, the second line, the first line is the parade, or is rather the um, the morose, grieving um, parade of the death. The second line is the band and celebration coming up behind it. The second line is born of this um, this this beautiful jubilated celebration of death. That's why New Orleans feels the way it does. That's why it has the resistant qualities it does. That's why it it buoys itself at all times because our celebration here is incorporative of death. There are no bigger parties in New Orleans, period, other other than when someone dies. When someone dies, we have the biggest street parties um, that we would have outside of uh, Mardi Gras. And in some ways, they're, they're much more unhinged. They're much more beautiful. They're, they're, they're incredibly celebratory um, and totally liberated and a, a total embrace of the, the death process. And that defiant uh, jubilation is not a bypass. It's not... Um, naive it's not to the exclusion there's no negation there um it is purely integrational it's an integral celebration and um and that's what i try and do all the time with all my shit i i I, in some ways i find it i mean that's my favorite way to celebrate and i find it the most the greatest reason for celebration and in fact you know you look at some of the most degraded places that in, in the world that have really suffered and you end up finding the most beautifully celebratory music on the fucking planet. And, um, and, and there's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like how you describe, I, you know, I watched your post about the, the New Orleans, uh, like parade, the casket followed by the parade. But the, I especially like the, at the end of that, there's the dancing together, this like interwoven 
like the grieving and the celebration and, and the grieving yeah, totally. and the celebration and the celebration and the grieving and the celebration and the grieving yeah, and the right. so it's it's you know that's poetry man totally. that, that's poetry our the very i mean boy you know if you want to get down to me for, for my definition of beauty is the recognition that whatever it is that you're beholding will pass into something else. It's the recognition of the transitory nature of life that is the premise. That's what ascends something from sort of the mundane to the poetic. It's precisely what creates our poetry um, and gives us that sense of um, extra compression of meaning to any moment. It's mm. like those moments when you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm having a conversation <laughs> yeah. with my daughter. And it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> totally. this is, this is never going to happen again. Mm. This is, this is this one time. It's not mm -hmm. a constant. It's not static. It's passing right before my fucking eyes. And that lends it this extra substance, this sense of, um, Everything, man. Gratitude, beauty, poetry, the whole kit and caboodle, you know? So, yeah. My, my daughter, incidentally, yeah. asked me the other day, the conversation I was just thinking of, it was yesterday, and she said, she was upset about something. She said, why do bad things happen? I was like, wow. <laughs> Give me a second. So, I don't know exactly. <laughs> but I can tell you this. We are, we grow in direct correlation to the bad things we come up against. The quote, bad things are part of us. They're there, they shape us and they shape all that we experience. And I tried to sort of deliver the notion that we're speaking about, which is that death, you know, is in some ways the ultimate, that loss of identity, the, the sublimation. I still, you know, I still feel that there is an essential quality that persists. Um, that's, that's my yeah, experience that's, too, yeah, like I can speak that. on yeah. that, but yeah. Um, but that the, lo the, the loss of identity, the disformation um, is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate of those quote, bad things. Right? Because all the bad things, they're all related to our fear of death. I mean, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, an incredible amount of mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. are related to our fear of loss of identity. And um, so once we really confront that, you know, I think a, a cascade of um, a cascade of, of sort of contexts erupt in which you start to see things in a, in a, from a more poetic, through a more poetic lens.
now a word from our sponsor. We got a new sponsor, everybody. Isn't it a special treat to get a new sponsor? To hear about a new sponsor. I'm just, must be so exciting for you. This one's extra exciting and uh, has a lot of heart all wrapped around it. This sponsor, I have a great deal of love for, and and I'm, I'm glad I don't plan these, these sponsorship moments because I can just sort of lean into how it feels to talk about whatever it is. And uh, right now it's to talk about the lost church. The lost church, well, my version of introduction to the lost church began quite a few years ago when the first space, well, I guess the space where you're going to die really came into being, Viracocha, uh, long live Viracocha, closed, and we stopped doing our open mic there. And this is back when You're Going to Die really was mainly just the open mic, the heart of what we do. It still is the heart of what we do. You can check out our calendar at yg2d.com to find out when the next one is. We do them online right now and probably will indefinitely. But we used to do them in person. And um, when Viracocha closed, by then I connected up to Brett and befriended him or he befriended me or we just were fast friends. <laughs> Uh, and like I feel about the venues we've really settled into with our events, I'd rather be friends with the venue and feel like I'm tapping into community in a deeper way than just like getting a kick-ass space to do a show in. And it also the lost church is a kick-ass space or creates kick-ass spaces. We, before the pandemic used to do the show once a month at least, we were doing the You're Going to Die Poetry Prose and Everything Goes at the Lost Church. And it just was like exactly what the show wanted and what I wanted. So that when I would come and show up, Brett was there, the the mastermind behind this whole thing. And we could talk and have a beer and shoot the shit instead of like, let's work out the logistics of how this show is going to go down. Like once we knew what we were doing, it was much more about getting time together as friends than it was about anything else. And so we've done that show at the lost church for years and years and years. And the lost church is committed to these sustainable spaces and not these big venues for big artists that need tens of thousands of audience members. But, but, smaller intimate spaces for those artists and for artists that just need 70 to 100 seats to fill and do what they do. The Lost Church is a group of artists, musicians, and industry professionals dedicated to the belief that people need beautiful, intimate performance spaces to share their ideas, stories, and arts. And their goal is to create a network of performance parlors that can host and nurture local and touring artists in a way that the larger spaces never can. For there are far more artists who can fill a 49-seat theater than can fill a 490-seat theater. And furthermore, they say, there are already established business models to keep the larger spaces alive. So that's why the Lost Church came into being. Due to the massive amounts of permitting and regulation involved in running a performance space, as well as often suffering from minimal to non-existent promotion budgets, the average life of a smaller performance space is less than five years. This is normally right about the time that they finally start building up some name and recognition and visibility in the community. 
And the Lost Church's dream is to build a strong nonprofit arts organization that handles the running of these spaces, the leasing, the booking, and the promoting, and allow local members of the community to run and curate the individual nights. And that's the nutshell. Thanks to the Lost Church for taking care of us over the years and providing a home away from home. So check out The Lost Church at thelostchurch.com and find out more about the good work they're doing in the world. Well, if you've been listening to the episodes of our podcast to date that we've released, you know what's next. We just think it's nice to both get the creative opportunity to output a little sound experience. <laughs> I mean, I'm acting like this is something I'm doing. I'm not. I'm not. I have ideas about what it can be, but Nick, Jaina, our producer, is definitely the main magician behind these moments. While we have been calling them meditations, uh, all I'm doing is just like, oh, this could this work? Oh, would you mind sending me this? Oh, could you add music to this? Um, and that's all this is, but it does feel special starting to get familiar for me, even when I listen to these episodes when they're done, but also in creating them to get a chance to slow down and attend to the creative output that connects to being here, peace, the portal, a little peace portal, if you will, to the present moment, a peace portal to the present moment mortal moment. And we're going to do that here now because I asked Alex, who, by the way, was so good to talk to and work with and just in terms of communication and helping us get all the things to put the episode together. Uh, just a real pleasure. And like everybody that I've had the, the opportunity to work with in these episodes, but thanks to Alex for being down to do it and also for saying yes to this segment. And all I did is I asked him to send a little audio from New Orleans, wherever he finds a little peace out in the world there, even if it's in his backyard, whatever it is. And, and he sent us a little recording. And like we do, we're just going to be with that thing and use it to drop in in the middle of another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. And instead of explaining too much what's happening, why don't you just listen?
I was depressed for about six months. And it's as, like... as, as, as it happens, because I, <laughs> I forget my tools. I'm like, where are my tools? You know, it's funny, you, you gather all these tools in life, and then suddenly you can like literally forget how to breathe. It's like, and then people will be like, just breathe deeply. You're like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't even want to have my tools. I don't want to have my, yeah. I want to be upset. So like, you know, you, you forget your shit. So I was suffering uh, for six months. Meanwhile, I had already established this well-established protocol of remembering to be a child, but I had forgotten. I couldn't impl implement it anymore because no one reminded me and I was incapable of reminding myself. So I'm coming off this airplane and about three families ahead, it was a very long off-ramp, very crowded, pre-COVID, and um, I see this kid, he's about six, and he is with his parents and he's tapping on the railing, and he's looking out at the sky. And he's looking up at the ceiling, looking down his shoes. He's kind of skipping. He kind of jumps himself up on the railing, then down. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, okay, start imitating this kid. Just start imitating him. And this is the brilliant thing about this technique, if you will. It actually doesn't require anything other than imitation. It doesn't require anything magical. All you have to do is pretend. All you have to do is pretend. And so I, <laughs> this is my experience anyway. So I start tapping on the thing. Anything he does, I do. I'm making sure nobody, especially his parents, are seeing me imitate their kid. Because I'm, I'm, I'm close enough where they just turn back and they would see that I'm, I'm imitating their, their kid. But he skips, I skip. He looks up out the window, I look up out the window. And I instantly, I start to sense this thing. What is this thing? I was like, oh, wonder. He's just, he's looking at the railing like it's the first time he's seeing it. He's looking out the window like, huh, maybe this is the first time this kid's been on a fucking off-ramp. I don't know what's going on for him, but he's in a state of non-redundancy. By the time I got off the off-ramp, those six months of depression had completely evaporated and they stayed evaporated and it's also incidentally how I and who knows why I wasn't able to remember this but three years before that I was really really depressed basically well not basically I was I social uh, suicidal ideation was like just a you know it was like the butter on every piece of bread um I would look at joists, uh, you know, determine sort of architecture by what could like su support my body weight. Things were bleak. <laughs> and, and I was sober. There was no drugs involved. There was nothing like that. I was just like, this is the worst. I had become a brand. I had become a robot. My band's name was I'm a Robot. It turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I had lost my way. And the only way that I got back and what ended up starting Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros was I thought, okay, before I kill myself, let me think back to the last time I felt free and pure. And I went back, 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 back. And it wasn't until I got back to like fifth grade in uh, elementary school music class where I had no semblance of like any of this. 
status anxiety. I had no idea about like cool. I didn't think about brands. I was just in a, just a just a child in class, and all we did was sing songs in terrible unison, banging on stuff out of time. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I'm gonna make that music. Let me make that music. I'm gonna make shit that <laughs> just is highly unprofessional. I'm gonna stop thinking about my audience. I'm gonna stop all this nonsense, and I'm going to try and recapture uh, my childishness. And um, I didn't have a. I, I wasn't inspired to do that. It was just a cognitive because I was depressed when you're in that. But this was a an operation that almost revitalization is an emergent property of. If you just do X, Y, and Z, this is me. This is not advice for you. I'm talking to myself. But if you want to take this advice and you're listening, yeah. please do. If it doesn't work, don't blame me. This is what this well worked <laughs> you for me. You said you didn't have to. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but for me, it was like very very simple. You just you just pretend to be a child, whatever that means to you. It doesn't mean to be childish and rude. It means pretend to have wonder, pretend that what you're doing is not redundant, pretend that you don't know shit, pretend that you're not full of fucking reified and concretized knowledge, but instead just be a fucking, just be a little vessel and admit your earnestness, admit your naivete, admit that you don't know. Shrug, because we, 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 the most alive I've ever felt is when I'm not full of content, when I'm not contentious, when instead I have only one intention, and that intent is a flowing of the universe through me, not me. And then, yes, we oscillate. I let it flow through me, then I reify and I try and disseminate. But then, ideally, I get rid of those contentions again because they, they, they will accidentally define me. And they will pin me down and create like a, a non-vital state. So, yeah, I just pretended I was a kid again, and, and Edward Sharp came out of that. Mm. And, um, yeah, for the most part, having uh, an edict with Edward Sharp, which was with the whole band, everyone understood, we're not rock stars. We'd say that, but I'd say that before we all went on stage. We're not <laughs> rock stars. We're kids at a show and tell. Let's go! You know what I mean? It was like, uh, please, <laughs> yeah. kids let at us show and not tell. be yeah. rock stars. Because to me, what that means is like this, suddenly it's, okay, then you're not the audience. And then suddenly, like, you're creating these partitions and these expectations of these behavioral expectations. And uh, instead, you know, to just do away with that. And just having that intention um, helped us, I think, maintain a certain energy um, that kept us vital for, for a fairly long time. I think, I think in some ways, if there's any state that represents that essential, essentialness, um, yeah, it would be the child, the child state, you know, and it's not the kids say they, oh, like I, you know, don't say they know everything they do. And as soon as they start saying no, they, they, you know, they, they think they want to be know-it-alls too, but there's, there's a beginner's mind that kids have. An, an exuberance, um, at, at least in my experience, for discovery um, that implies a lack of knowledge, that implies a lack of redundancy, that implies a lack of static uh, being. And that's really what I'm referring to. 
um, is the is is a state of wisdom over knowledge, and wisdom being the the vesselhood, the intention as opposed to the contention, as opposed to developing all our own content. This is why I'm. This is why I'm. This is why I'm. This is why I'm. All of those things impede the ingress of universal energy in my worldview. And so that's what I'm talking about. And, the, and I think adulthood in a lot of ways is defined by these definitions. And so removing them um, relates itself, I think, to the childlike state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. That's good. Um, I read this quote this morning. It made me think of you and, and in anticipation for this conversation. This is Charles DeBose. The important thing is to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become just really like feel like it captures mm -hmm. a lot of what we're did you did at. you did you post that elsewhere no did you read do you follow rob bresney yes that's where i saw it <laughs> yes yes it's a great quote it is a great it's quote. a great fucking quote and it's this weird dichotomy irony really is that the idea that we are you know that we are not our bodies that we are immortal is it is is uh, let me see if i can really describe this it, it's it's such an interesting <laughs> irony and we touched on it yeah. earlier but essentially if you bypass the physical to access the immortal what you end up creating is an equilibrium of non-vitality of death, death. <laughs> so by trying to be, by, by trying to bypass the, mm. trans, the, the, the transient, uh, sorry, the, the transitory nature of life, by trying to bypass the physical and all the pains associated with these, um, with the impermanence of things, what you end up creating in that hunt for the immortal, in that supposed embrace of the immortal, is actually death. And so that bypass instead needs to be an integration. And the bypass doesn't just pertain to sort of biological life and death, in my view. The shadow stuff is born of the avoidance of the fear, or sorry, yeah, the avoidance of the fear of death. And so when we bypass death itself or biological death or the physical, what we're actually also trying to do is bypass our fear of the death of the physical. And then that in and of itself manifests as neuroses. So it's this amazing irony that when we try to apprehend immortality by bypassing mortality, we end up creating death itself. But when we integrate mortality, we end up creating regeneration, and that is immortality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I wish <laughs> in the future but, I'd like to be able to explain that in a single sentence. No, but there's a way it should keep working like this, which is you saying it is the actual occurrence. Like we should feel in the expression, literally what you're talking about right there's so a way the, the language, language does, does that, that to yeah. you and it should i should be left sort of like what? 
wait, I'm pretty sure I just died. <laughs> right, right, right. Whoa, that was confusing. Like, yeah, yeah, create that, yes. that total dissolution of comprehension for a moment and then come totally. out on the other side. Sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, let me bring it back to the toolbox, the tool bag. You could be like, I don't fucking know where it is right now. Don't ask me about it um, if you're in one of those stages. But I do, I am curious kind of what your touchstones are and especially like people, like wise ones, um, elders even. Um, but, uh, but you know, the stuff, the books, the breathing. You know, so for me, what I like telling people is play around, imagine, invent, again with the childishness, again with the idea of, okay, breath, okay, meditation. Play around. What would this kind of breath be like? There's not one kind of breath, and breaths aren't quantified just in seconds. There are qualitatively different kinds of breath. There's directional breath, there's yellow breath, there's green breath, there's heavy <laughs> breath, there's fire breath. Play around because you'll, you don't know what you might happen upon. And it's fun and it's creative and it's inspiring. And, um, and so I guess my answer to you is that, yes, I come across wisdom, but my process generally for the most part, even though it ends up having me fumble sometimes and I'll do shit like forget my toolbox for a little while, um, is to be a child, be inventive and to play. I know you may have touched on this already through talking about like the kind of stuff with your parents and your daughter this year, but I'm just kind of curious, is there anything in particular that you're grieving right now? I think my youth, I think energy, I think being a father and a partner and, and a creative person uh, and a whatever and a housekeeper and a, and a, and a um, for enough time, you know, entropy is, is, is essentially the, you know, yeah, it rises in complexity and, and orders of chaos. But in the end, what it is, is a dissipation of energy. And, um, and I'm experiencing that. I'm experiencing sort of the, you know, from a, from, a, from a meta view, it's like, oh, that person was really alive and now they're sort of less alive. <laughs> you know, their, their, their regenerative capacities are diminishing mm. and, um, and they're tired all the time. The last time I woke up feeling like sprightly, I, I, I could not tell you. I could not tell you. I wake up utterly exhausted and um <laughs> and and i remember yeah. my dad waking up that way i remember my mom i remember everybody all the adults being like that and you know i, I try so what i try and do throughout the day is re respin the um mm -hmm. the regeneration and and yeah so i guess i guess grieving grieving that is something i'll, I'll I'll constantly be doing. And, and by the way, that sure. process of grieving for me is celebratory. It's like, yay, I always wanted to struggle. Here I am. <laughs> like, you know, to understand these things as, as, I don't know if opportunity is the right word, but as um, like, I'm still here. 
This mm-hmm. is this is still the story. This is still mm-hmm. the epic that I find myself in. This is a fucking epic. One second of life is an epic. Everybody's life is a fucking epic. And if you don't see it as an epic, <laughs> then things are bad enough that you don't have the perspective yet to see it as an epic or or you don't want to see it as a fucking epic. And I think that a lot of us don't want to see our lives as an epic. We don't want to necessarily view our bad shit, the bad times my daughter referred to, as good times. A lot of us actually define ourselves by the bad times in an unwitting sort of um, inversion of the heroic uh, journey. But it's not about bypassing them and thinking, oh, no, they're not bad, they're good. No, they're bad. (laughs) They're intense. They're really hard. And they're contributing to this, um, this need for courage. They require courage. And without those hard times, we wouldn't need courage. We wouldn't need to try. We wouldn't. And, and I think that's always worth remembering. And so in this moment, the humdrum, mundane, bullshit, fear, and death I'm going through is the one we all end up going through if we live long enough, which is uh, the sort of um, letting go of, um, you know, there's, 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 certain, ener- there's certain energy uh, capacity <laughs> um, realities. And, uh, and we can only spread our energy around so much and uh, achieve so much in a day. And, and then if we try and overstep that, we end up tired. And um, so it's a, com- you know, a competing interest between the desires and, and energetic capacity. And um, yeah, it's just interesting balancing that and, and aging. I think, that's, I think it's kind of cool, you know, um, but it's also painful. Uh-huh. Why are you always talking about light life and death? She felt my suicide. She asked, do mountains crumble? I say yes, babe, just like you and I. She say yeah, but do the blue in her eyes vanish just like the blue in sky when the night comes to strip off you a light. Damn, that's deep. I held it tight. I say yes, babe. We decompose to feed the roses. But you know what? 
They blew my option to my mind. Pops, that's sad, she said. But I guess I was new inside. I laughed, I said, that's how you know you're truly mine. My little student ought to do it now. She didn't cry, she just said, Pops, read me that roomy rhyme. Some ancient wisdom out of Sunni sky. For you and I are forever where we truly lie. Together, Illumina. <laughs> That was Miracle from Alex Ebert's solo album, I versus I, which is nice to come around through all that we just listened to from hearing Alex Ebert talk about death and dying and death of identity. And suddenly it dawns on me that that's the title of the album, I versus I, and how this album is this kind of push back again on all the identities and albums he put out before it. Nick Jane. Yeah, that's my identity. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. What is your identity? Can you just give us a quick blurb? Like if you were pitching someone in an elevator? Well, Alex was just talking about not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And how right, capitalism so. demands that we do it to stay relevant. No, I really appreciated what he was saying because I think about that a lot of, you know, artistry is so much about following whims and curiosity and mm. pushing past identity but then everything to do with marketing yourself in a capitalistic world is about keeping it secure and understandably you want to present like this is my band and this is what we sound like and if you come to a show if you come to see pearl jam today or 10 years ago or 10 years from now you know what you're getting it's not going to suddenly mm. be mm-hmm. We got this new 20 minute jazz freak out, <laughs> you know, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. No, I want this reliable product, you know, you can count on but it. But being an artist is the opposite of that. It's, uh, this is how I feel today. And I'm trying this thing. And that happens to me all the time. I know a lot of musicians do this of like, I wrote this song, but it doesn't sound like me. So what do I do with it? Do I create another band with a different name for it? Do I just mm-hmm. put on a different album and hope someone follows me along you know help the audience follows me it's a it's a really interesting subject to think about um 
and it the the end all uh, the ending answer is usually i mean i think alex even expressed some wish that he could have all his identities grouped together so that someone can find it on spotify but the answer right in summation ends up being well let's not let's not be crazy <laughs> let's let's yeah. keep ourselves you know we, we've built up this name we've got these followers like let's not squander that um it's a it's a real quandary for a lot of artists i think yeah that the the name of what you're doing is like a whole nother thing to be a different band name and uh and how that that becomes a difficulty to in switching from project to project. Uh, I, I even think about my, my example, not the greatest example. I bet you could come up with a better one, but, but Bonnie Vare comes to mind and thinking about an early, early album of Bonnie Vare that kind of broke uh, them, him uh, onto the scene and how loved it was. And then the album sense, maybe the most recent one, how, kind of experimental and eclectic and and out there quote unquote compared to what he'd produced before how jarring it was for people that I would talk to who loved that first album so much and uh, you know I can say that I love that first album the most too and and there's a part of me that wants more and more and more of that but I I also think that I more appreciate the the artist that's going to go out on a limb and just try out the totally unique and new endeavor with their sound and appreciate that. Cause I, cause I almost feel like I'm getting access to them being more human. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, that that's definitely a human being behind this. Like just trying shit out, trying out something new, seeing where it can go. And that's inspiring to me, even though I might not want to listen to Sufjan Stevens new albums much at all. Uh, I really believe in, in an artist like that, that can just keep, keep going and keep trying out new things, keep experimenting. It's funny you mentioned Sufjan Stevens because I've been writing a bunch of instrumental music for this show and for films and stuff. And I want to put out an instrumental album. And I have this thought of, well, this doesn't sound like Nick Jana songs. So should I call mm. it something else? Um, should I come up with a band yeah. name? And then yeah. just this past week, Sufjan Stevens came out with an instrumental album under his own name. There's no words. It's all, yep. you know, like he's already pretty eclectic. So it's not like mm -hmm. a, a left turn, but um, I think it's his first instrumental album. Um, and I was like, oh, I guess you can just do that. And it's just okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, what is your most recent version of, of kind of, Reinvention, I guess. I, I mean, for lack of a better term, and is that it? This this new endeavor into um, instrumental sounds. Well, I've I've made music for like ballets and dance and for film, but it, it's it's funny how even when you know my s stage name is the name that people know me by, so it's 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 my identity, but also it it becomes this kind of mask, even if it's very much a mask that looks exactly like me it's still this mask that you put energy into presenting rather than i woke up today and decided i'm doing this it's totally different you know um mm. there's something more stabilizing about it i guess is the good way to put it but then also there's these urges to uh break out and do something totally different um mm -hmm. and then and then you're in this position where it's like that idea of here's a song does it sound enough like me 
or does it sound too like me like you don't want to just write mm. the same song over and over again but like yeah, that's fascinating if, if i just like find this new instrument patch on a keyboard and i go in this direction and i sing in a totally different voice is that me <laughs> is that okay mm -hmm. do i call that something yeah. else mm -hmm. yeah i love that i so appreciate the musicians friend musicians especially in my life who do that creative being in the world in a way i can't and i just feel like i just gather up all those kinds of people around me because even just sitting here like it's enlivening to hear you i mean i love your music i love your creative output in that way and and so then love the the questions and the trying this out and even getting the little windows into what it's like to think oh this song sure is my sound it, it's more of me and then what is it to be like no i want to not do that and try out something that that puts a puts that me to death mm -hmm. um and this this episode's been so great to work on because of my love for that kind of conversation and and the kind of person that you are and alex ebert um this has been really cool uh to produce and be be in yeah great work hey you too nick you too uh, hey, everybody, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, big news. We're two ratings away from 100 ratings, okay? <laughs> this is a big deal. I think once you hit 100, that's it. You just call it. It's it's done. You reach the the epitome of, of podcasting success. You move out. And you so get we'll your need own your apartment. Help <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I can't wait. I'm living with these three units <laughs> right now. It's brutal. <laughs> brutal. So guys, give us those ratings. If you're on Apple Podcasts, uh, go into the app and hit that 100 for us. And then I can get my apartment I've been waiting for. <laughs> no, no, no. The podcast moves out and gets an apartment. Oh, you oh stay God. there. Oh, it's going to move out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Guys, do not rate this podcast, okay? Leave it. I, I can't let go. Um, I need it. So please don't rate uh, the podcast. Okay. Hey, well, everybody, thanks so much for listening. I, I can, I, I, I really actually feel this. I feel like I can't even let, let go of this episode. It's been, <laughs> uh, it's been it's so much to me. Uh, I gotta kill myself <laughs> by letting it go. The identity of myself that's left in this nice. episode. Goodbye. Nice. Goodbye. Nice. Goodbye, Ned. Goodbye. <laughs> thanks, Nick. Bye. Bye.